What's up, ladies and gents? Welcome to the Elk Hunt Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Rich. And if you're new here, this podcast feed is a place for all of the elk hunting interviews that I've done over the last six or seven years. Some are Wapiti Wednesdays, some are from my original podcast. But I wanted to compile the largest collection of elk hunting knowledge and interviews ever put together, which is pretty cool. And I would love your guys' help getting it out there to the world. So if you could do me a huge favor, uh, this is a new feed. So go leave it a five-star review and maybe tell a friend about it. But thank you so much for tuning in and I hope you guys enjoy this elk hunting podcast. All right, buddy. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Wapiti Wednesday. We had you on the podcast a little while ago. Did we do a Thursday show? Did we a Muley Monday? What did we do last time? I don't know what it was just uh we, we podcasted. Talk, yeah, we podcast. We talked about that goat hunt I went on. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So I think it was a Thursday show. Uh, yeah, because yeah, we, we talked about that quite a bit. Um, and we did talk about the fact that you had a late season tag. Uh, yep. You had a pretty epic late season hunt. So we're going to dive into that a little bit. And I was going to pick your brain on late season rifle stuff. Uh, all that good stuff. So welcome to the show. How are we doing, man? I'm doing great, man. Uh, just, yeah. Thanks for having me on once again. It's always fun to talk to you. Yeah. So, um, let's just start out with that, this hunt. I, I've, I haven't heard the story yet, so this is gonna be fresh for me too. So, uh, so you drew a late season Wyoming tag. Yep. And it's a migration hunt. Yeah. It's, you know, migration is very helpful into it. It, it, there's resident elk in there, but you kind of, you know, you hope for the migration because you know, those chance of those Yellowstone bulls or just those big uh, bulls that stay hidden all season long show up. Dude, okay, so have you guided this area before? Nope, never set foot in it till this year. Really? Okay. So one of the cool things about this particular hunt, like you said, like there's uh there's this like magic potential to just turn up a giant, a true giant in the in the sense that like nobody's seen a bull. You know, like I feel like a lot of the places we hunt these days someone knows about almost all the bulls or all the bucks, or, like the, everything gets turned up, but when you when you put in like this Yellowstone factor, there's always this potential. Maybe like it's the hopeful potential that there's yeah. some super giant. Yeah. You know, and it's, that's kind of going into the hunt. You know, I've, I'd heard plenty of rumors and just, you know, stories about this area. And I, through mutual friends knew of like one outfitter who's guided that area for 20 some years. So, I mean, I had pretty good Intel going into it. And then just, it was kind of a weird thing, like through mutual, a mutual friend of mine, after he learned, I drew the tag he calls me two days later and says, Hey, one of the, the guy, a guy I grew up with, he also drew, you guys need to link up. And, you know, for me, I'm, I mean, I'm kind of like a stubborn, hard-headed solo hunter a lot of the time <laughs> already. Like I knew I put in for that tag on a whim knowing there, like I knew the area the potential, but I had a couple out of state friends that drew general tags and I was just planning on taking them into one of my spots kind of up in the wilderness or somewhere where I killed my bull last year. And, then when, so I was like, I'll just put in for one of the hardest hunts in the state and I won't draw it like normal. And then when the draw results come out, I'm like, well, that changed a little bit. But, yeah. uh, I was, so Bill and I got to talking and it was just pretty obvious right from the get go. We had the same idea, like let's pack the horses, pack deep in and let's hunt elk. And, uh, so we immediately started making plans and it was just in, you know, in the end, after the whole hunt and said it and done, I, I'd beyond grateful that that was how this hunt worked out. Cause I think, I won't say I would have 
been in over my head if I would have done it solo, but it would not been nearly as fun trying to deal with four head of stock by myself in that country in those conditions with the amount of work we put in just the two of us. It had been a it had been a lot for just me. So I'm really happy that it turned out I got to hunt with a friend who was just as diehard about just let's go elk hunting and yeah. let's get wilderness. So that made the hunt a heck of a lot better. Before we dive into the hunt, when you when you look at a tag like this, you know, you draw this premium tag. A lot of guys would a lot of guys would not hunt it the way you did in that they wouldn't go super deep. They wouldn't go as far back because the reality is, is like when you have a high quality tag and Jed and I have talked about this, how but sometimes when you have a high quality tag, it, it, it can mean that it's easier to kill an elk uh, closer, whatever it may be. But usually what it means is like you just have access to uh, if you go farther back, you can also kill, you know, another or a bigger bull or have a different experience uh less people those things so uh, you know i think a lot of people draw a tag like this and that doesn't have to be wyoming can be any state but they kind of almost half-ass it yeah would you agree with that yeah 100 percent. and like you know for me once you know i started learning more about this tag actually you know when i harvested my goat in early august and then i went in and checked it in with the game warden kyle who's a good friend of mine here and then also the biologist here used to be a biologist up in cody for a long time running the kind of the ungulate studies on the migration so when i was sitting there checking in my goat and i brought up the tag i had and he goes oh come here let me show you (laughs) so i mean i mean he kind of basically he drew me i mean just straightforward this is where the elk are going to migrate this is how they come through this rocky country this is i mean if you're not seeing them here look here and he goes, what's your plan? Are you going to pack into this area or are you going to go hunt where most of the people hunt because there's fresh elk there every day and they just kind of filter through? I'm like, no, we're going to we're going to do the packing thing. That's what I love. That's, you know, for me, you know, coming from my guiding background, I just love being in the hills with horses packed in, you know, and I was like, maybe we won't see as many elk as this other spot that's easier to hunt. But that's not, you know, for me, it's drawing a tag like this or just having a general tag. It's all about the adventure part of filling my tag. It's not for about. Sure what I fill it with. So, I mean, it was kind of a no brainer for me and Bill. We were like, we're packing in, we're setting up camp and we're hunting in the the back country, you know, as far and hopefully preferably not seeing any other tag holders. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of Bill and I talked it over and it was, we didn't even like hesitate to think if we were going to go to this other spot, that's a lot easier to hunt where the elk kind of filter through there before they get up into the area where we eventually packed into. But, uh, I'm really glad we did what we did after it's, you know, the way the weather set up this year, we just got so much snow in October, early up high. It pushed that migration almost, I was sitting here kind of starting to twiddle my thumbs like, okay, it can stop snowing now. Because <laughs> uh, the biologist told me, he goes, you know, those elk start moving no matter what, especially the kind of the the Yellowstone elk, they'll start moving with the first little storms. But he's like, they start migrating based on the temperatures anyway. So no, even without snow, you'll start seeing elk pushing through this area but the snow obviously helps so by the time we got in there there was no question a lot of elk had already gone through and we were at the definitely the yellowstone part of the migration all the resident you know wilderness bulls things like that had probably already gone long through mm-hmm. but you know nonetheless like they kind of told us no matter what on a snowy or even big years those elk will continue to file through there all the way into december which is i mean it man it that country blew my mind it's big rugged nasty country and then these elk come up and over a 12,000 foot peak and bail off a cornice that was already 30 feet high in snow. And you could just glass up there with the spotter or binos and you could just see this cut in the 
cornice where these elk just come peeling over. And I mean, no I couldn't, way. That's nuts, man. I couldn't believe it. I had been told it multiple times by multiple people, but I couldn't believe it until we did a, Bill and I did a kind of a feed run scouting trip in middle, middle of October into our area, just like a weekend warrior. Let's, I met him at, met him at the trailhead, drove up there after work and we just piled in, piled in a bunch of feed. And then we did like a loop up in the high country just to get our bearings. And Mm -hmm. I looked up on this peak and sure as shit, there was a herd of elk bedded above 12,000 feet. Just, you could just see them on the skyline. I was like, well, sure as shit, that's what they do. (laughs) Dude. So when you like, look at these migration hunts, uh, I want, I really want to get into the story first, but we're going to, we're going to screw that. We're going to, I'm going to ask too many questions anyway. So when you look at like a migration hunt like this, and a lot of times, you know, you hear guys talk about, you know, how much snow pushes them or, or whatever. And, and you hear different things because it it can, you know, there can be elk that, that start to push as soon as the snow flies. Uh, Deer can push as soon as the snow flies. And then, you know, there's elk that don't push until it's, you know, over their damn head, it seems like. So what's in your experience, just kind of on this hunt and, you know, has that, has it changed your thought, uh, having put the effort into a migration hunt like this? Man, you know, it's, it's like weird for those years I guided on in the Jackson side of things. I, I used to hunt a lot of migration elk coming out of the park, coming through the wilderness, heading south towards like the elk refuge and stuff. And for us, what we noticed back when I was guiding the first few snowstorms, our resident elk, the ones we were already hunting, those, mm. they bailed as quick as hell. But those Yellowstone elk are stubborn, uh, to say the least. I mean, it takes some serious snow, in my opinion. And then it also, the cold weather is really, I think, what gets it going more than the snow. Like temperatures dropping is really what kicks them into pushing out of the the high country than it is deep snow. And But, you know, this hunt, it was just different country, different way the elk come through, just big, nasty country. And I, I mean, it just blew my mind to, to, you know, we'd heard these rumors and just, so we rode in and, uh, you know, we kind of glass some hills on our way in, not really expecting to see much, which we didn't. And, but so we're sitting there, you know, the night before opener after a long day of setting up camp and stuff. And we're just, you know, you have every thought in your head. All right, we got this premium tag, but is it really that great? Is it going to be like some of the rumors we've heard? And so the, you know, the next day, opening day, when we kind of rode up and made our, we rode about an hour and a half, two hours in the dark that day to get to where we wanted to be at daylight, looking into this other drainage. And as it got light, you know, we just started picking apart the hills and there was just, you just started seeing more elk as the light got there. And then, you know, we'd come to find out on the hunt just every single day, there'd be a new, you'd ride this same area. And it's like, just a white, a blank canvas happens every night and there's new elk up there the next day. That is crazy. I don't know where they come from. Like <laughs> that country, you would think you'd see these elk staging on other ridges, but you don't. They just, they, they cover a ton of ground. I think it during the day and during the night and it just, it blew my mind. I mean, it, it was definitely, it, it achieved every expectation I had hoped for and just kind of blew them all out of the water at the same time. It was just, it really was some of the most fun I've ever had elk hunting. Okay, let's circle back a little bit um, before we get too far. And uh, so basically going into the hunt, you 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 plan on riding in, packing in. Uh, I mean, you got the ponies, the the kind of the assets to do it. Uh, walk us through kind of like that's the game plan. How early did you go in? You going in first day of season? You going in a week before season? Like, you know, how how did it go? Like just this walk, yeah. back it up and then walk through the hunt. Yeah, you know, we wanted to be in there for opening day. Just we know the the resident outfitter for that area who takes some of those late season tags. We knew he'd be in there probably with hunters. So we wanted to be in there on opening day. And we uh, so I left work 
hauled up there, met Bill, and then we stayed the night in town and then headed to the trailhead early on, I guess would be the 31st because the opener was on the 1st of November. And so we got, we packed in and we're sitting at the trailhead packing the horse. This is actually kind of a, well, it's a funny story and also a ridiculous story. So it'll, it'll be kind of good, but we're, we're sitting there packing the horses and the horses kind of look up the hill and I look up and there's a big grizzly walking down the trail, literally 200 yards from the trailhead. Oh. I'm like, you know, I'm like, when we went in and scouted three weeks before that, we had a grizzly in the camp, in our camp meadow, right at dark. So, I mean, we were well prepared to deal with bears. So it's we're we kind of just laughed to ourselves like, well, might that might as well have it start happening now. Yeah. And they're kind of, there was a deer season still going on. So there, I think some guys had killed a deer not too far from the trailhead there. And that's why the bear was following the blood down. Yeah. Uh, so I seen him disappear into this little draw where we couldn't see him anymore. We knew he was about 200 yards up the trail and we weren't too worried about it. So we went back to packing horses and a, a truck pulls in and a younger guy, I don't know, like mid twenties, 30 ish from Michigan. I think it was Michigan was on the plates, but he gets out. He's obviously going deer hunting. And so I, I kind of run up, he's walking to the gate and I run up and intercept him. And I'm like, Hey bud, there's a big grizzly that just disappeared in that draw 10 minutes ago. He hasn't come out that I've seen chances are he's sitting up there in the, on the right off the trail, eating on something or whatever, because he hasn't come out. Just figured I'd give you the heads up. Oh, okay. And you know, he's, he's like, all right. And I, so I just kind of, all right. Yeah. I just thought I'd let you know. I walk back, start packing the horses and I see him talk to another hunter who had pulled in. And so then I, kind of look up and all of a sudden I, you know, this is probably 10 minutes after I told him, I see his little orange hat disappearing into the bottom of the draw. I told him a grizzly had just gone into. <laughs> and so I'm like, I mean, kind of just dumbfounded, like, all right, I mean, have at it, bud. Yeah. I, I don't know if you thought I was trying to scare you off. I'm not deer hunting. <laughs> and, uh, about three minutes later, my horse is all, I mean, wired up, looking uphill. And I thought the bear was coming over the knoll. Here comes this kid, pale faced, whiter than hell, running <laughs> at as fast as he can go with bear spray in his hand straight down towards us. <laughs> he barely speak. He's throwing his arm over his shoulder, yet going, the bear, the bear, he's 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 right up there. He's just over that hill. No shit. <laughs> I told you that. And he said he on the corner and that bear was right off the trail about 50 yards above him and started bluff and bluff charged him or charged him. And he just said he took off running, didn't even look back. Oh, my God. (laughs) Number one, when somebody tells you there's a grizzly somewhere, don't go there. Yeah. He broke that that rule. Rule number two, when the grizzly charges you, probably taking off running like prey was not the number one. (laughs) But, I mean, I I was kind of just dumbfounded. I was glad he was okay and nothing happened. But he – yeah, that was his first bear encounter, and I don't. I guess he just didn't really believe me when I said there's a grizzly right up there. I, I don't know what was going through his head, but I'm glad he was okay. But he was definitely spooked. So that was a pretty interesting start to the hunt. So sidebar, yeah. uh, just because it's almost same area. So I did a podcast last year on my deer hunt, and you know during this podcast I come across someone had marked a dead horse. Um, and I, I, you know, I didn't see when it was. And so I'm like, that's kind of nice. I don't know if it was yesterday or the day, but you know, like two months ago. Uh, right. anyway, so there's a dude that was listening to the podcast and he told me a story and I want to see it was like from Pennsylvania or something. And he went into the same trailhead and he actually texted me which one it was. And it was the same one goes in the sale, same trip or same trailhead first day he's ever hunted. And I don't know if he was elk or deer. I can't remember now, but he goes in there and this is the very first day, like I'm going Western hunting, gets charged by a bear in that exact same spot. 
and like, like this is like maybe a half mile down the trail and this bear like bum rushes him and he's like i didn't have time to go for my spray my gun it's a good thing the bear just like ran at me and then bolted the other way because like i just froze and he goes i turned around went to my truck and went home <laughs> like, yep. back to pennsylvania so it's like just a funny story like uh and I, I also having said that i think it should be fair that no one we should make a rule no one can use hey there's a grizzly up there as a way to detour hunters yeah that's that's just, that'd be a kind of a shitty thing to do <laughs> just that's a bad omen like let's yeah. not let's not play that game so if someone says there's a bear up somewhere like let's just all take their word for it from now on yeah i mean i kind of i kind of think the kid should by the amount of gear we had and loading the horses i think he should have figured we weren't going deer hunting and yeah but <laughs> kind of un, unfortunately insult to injury for him he locked his keys in his car oh shit and uh him and a buddy i think had parked on opposite sides of where they were like they were gonna cross each other hiking the low foothills for deer yeah so he he just like our my hunt partner's like well man you can stay in my like kind of sit in the horse trailer while you're waiting for your buddy he goes no i'm i'm just gonna walk down the road he i don't think he felt too comfortable staying in that trailhead which i really blame him for but uh yeah i mean he he got his full wyoming experience on that deer tag no question uh so you you head in uh, so, obviously yeah. this you know you know this is going to be a good trip and that you're already taken off from the tread horses are all tuned up and pissed off and on yeah. on edge yeah you know and so we headed up we actually never ran into that bear once by the time we left he i guess he had had enough chasing the michigan kid and kind of disappeared <laughs> so we headed up and uh you know the one thing that i especially like for people that are either you know, they don't hunt with their horses that much in the backcountry, depending on time of year, or they're the type of people that rent them occasionally, but aren't that familiar with stuff. When you start bringing in like November and snow conditions and things like that, there's so much more you got to think about on top of the fact you need to be able to pack feed to feed your horses for the whole hunt, stuff like that. But those trails, man, they just, they were so slick and icy. And this certain trail that we used to get up in our area was one of the steeper nastiest trails i've ever i mean really 23 switchbacks from the bottom to the top you gain Ooh. over four thousand feet and less than a mile of horizontal oh it's just long and the, the switchbacks aren't necessarily steep they're long switchbacks which is good but that trail there's times when you're literally above a thousand foot cliff with your wow. stock i mean 20 feet to where you're going for a fatal ride and uh Later on, I had a horse slip out on me on our meat run out that I thought was going over the cliff. And, uh, but so luckily Bill's horses, he brought four and they were all sharp shot on their fronts, which means, you yeah. know, Borium welded on the shoes for those that don't know. And I mean, that was pretty instrumental in helping the horses. And then my two horses, they didn't have sharp shoes on, but they knew what they were doing and nasty stuff. They'd either walk in the soft snow or they'd really dig their toes in. But there was times when I during the hunt and on that day, I just got off and walked to take the weight off my horse's back just to help him out with the ice and everything. But, you know, that's just something else that you don't really take into aspect when you go into a hunt like this. It's the conditions can beat you up just as much as anything else before you even get to the elk. Oh, for sure. And yeah, that can be really sketchy and just knowing what kind of shoes you're taking in and, and make sure you got yeah, the right equipment for sure. Um, yeah. That's that's yeah, that can be really sketchy in some of those spots. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, and you know, the biggest thing with a hunt like this, with us going into the wilderness, knowing we wouldn't have cell service and all that is just, you know, we needed the horses are a lifeline. You got to take care of them, feed them good. So, I mean, we had made a feed run in and hung 
some a bunch of cubes and trees and then bill had actually gone in earlier than i did because he had some more free time from work and he had scouted the area a little bit more and so we you know he was really instrumental in making this such a great hunt because he had extra time to go in with his stock in the summer and check things out and get an idea where we wanted to camp so we weren't going in blind so when we rolled into where we wanted to camp we started setting up camp which you know with your two people you start dumping loads and putting up wall tent a small wall tent and trying to get everything it just it's a you know a process after a day of packing in and then mm-hmm. went out to the creek and i mean it was we had just finished that really cold spell at the end of october like negative 20 probably up there and Whew. so that the creek was i mean a, there was a couple spots just a foot thick in ice i walk across it with no worries about falling through and i spent i think like roughly an hour or more with my axe chopping a hole in the ice so we could get start filling water for us and then try to water the horses which ended up they really didn't like the to water there which i really couldn't blame them they didn't like standing on ice so we'd just we'd rotate our horses and water them every morning night at this kind of a better spot down from camp but uh that was one of the things we really had to watch for i mean yeah when you start feeding just cubes and horses you got to watch for colic really bad because yeah. they can get stuffed up and we actually had i woke up one morning at 4 a.m like this was the day after i killed my bull and i heard a, i could just i mean from so many years of guiding and dealing with stuff like that i wake up to horses more than i'll wake up to a bear or anything just anything that doesn't seem right i wake up immediately and mm-hmm. i hear this horse just not he wasn't acting normal and i could hear him stomping and kicking and then i heard him kind of go down and roll around and that's when i knew he was probably acting like he was stuffed up so we carry banamine with us and so we gave him a shot of banamine and then took him with us just leading him the whole day while we went around and he was fine he was stuffed up we would later find out when he dropped out like a bag of bricks but (laughs) explain to explain to people like what colic is and then maybe why you were walking the horse with you yeah, you know, like colic is so basically horses have can't throw up. They, I mean, their stomach's a one way system. And um, when they eat, if you take them off the feed they're normally used to, is when this happens a lot. Some horses just get it other, more than others. But when you get them on compressed cubes, those cubes expand in their bellies, especially then you need to make sure they have ample water. You know, and our horses, they weren't drinking that good just because it was cold weather up there and the water's cold and they didn't want to drink always if they weren't tired, you know, if they hadn't been used that day. Mm-hmm. So they, uh, he just basically what I'm sure happened, he overate his cubes pretty heavily. And then it just, they all bundled up in one spot and started expanding and they started just creating a, I mean, a blockage in his stomach. And that's the danger with it is if a horse starts rolling around a whole bunch they can technically what twist a stomach basically is your, their stomach flops over in front or behind that blockage and it can just prevent it from moving through the system. And the only way you're saving their life is by an emergency surgery by a veterinarian at that point. Yeah. And that's even, that's touch and go too. Right. That's, that's definitely not a guarantee. You have to be right on it. So it's a, unfortunately, I'm, anyone that spent a lot of time in the backcountry with horses has probably had it happen and very possibly lost stock because of it but you know we were lucky i mean i woke up i knew right away that something was weird and so we went out there we gave him a shot banamine is basically a almost like a muscle relaxant helps helps them from tensing up and kind of helps pass and then we took him with us and i mean when you have a horse like that you don't want to let him out of your sight so we took him with us when we made my a run to get the rest of my bulls fronts and cape and we what he watered really good which that's a really good sign that they're not haven't twisted a gut usually when they're beyond kind of help they don't drink they won't eat he was still hungry and stuff so we had a pretty good feeling it was just a 
I mean, an uncomfortable blockage. And then Bill, Bill comes up to me. I think we were, we had just finished loading all the meat to do our meat run out. And Bill goes, you should have seen what my horse just did. <laughs> I said, what's that? He goes, it looks like he just left a bag of cubes behind him. It was, I mean, a solid amount as you could see, which it you, for people that don't deal with horses, you don't understand how much of a relief of a feeling it was to see a horse take a giant. Yeah. You know, so it was a, you know, we avoided anything, but that's, that was something you have to watch out heavily on these later hunts when your horses aren't drinking water as good as they normally would it, and you're using compressed cubes or anything of that nature that expands in them. You know, I, I like the cubes, um, but like you said, late season, and I kind of got, my sister got me all worried about the freaking cubes, and so then I started soaking them because you're supposed to soak them. You know, it's all half-ass soak them. Yeah. But that's a time-consuming bitch, too, and, you know. Yeah, I <sighs> You know, all the years I've guided, we've always just fed cubes and we also, you know, throw oats or sweet grain yeah. on of it to help them. But you do definitely have to watch their intake on the cubes. And, you know, if they're not drinking water, you got to be careful and yeah. watch those. And, you know, if I if it was up. So one of my good friends owns a big press barn. So we get, uh, you know, the tight pressed half cut bales. Yeah. Um, and I honestly late season. I do like those there. I mean, they take up a little more room, but if I had the time to feed run, uh, I would do pressed half bales. Um, just in the other facts, like I like, I like when they're eating all day versus like cubes is like this little pile that they eat and then they're done. And, and so if I like it, you know, especially if it's like, I'm going in, I'm just, horses are going to be tied up a lot. Then it's like, okay, I like the press bales because they're eating loose hay. They seem, seem to waste a little bit, but at the end of the day, six to one half dozen the other. I don't know. Um, yeah. I go back and forth on it. I do like the cubes because they take up way less space. Um, but if you can, in the late, they're just a bitch in the late season. Yeah. And, and no. if it gets too cold, they're a real bitch. Like I said, I've told you this before on these podcasts. We probably tell people more than we should, but uh... – <laughs> But uh, I think these transition areas with elk and mule deer are the most underrated areas. The the place, like you said, the, it's real fun to go scout them in the summertime, and it's fun to chase them in the fall, and it's easy to find them in the winter. But there's a big gap in between when we're chasing them in elk season, archery season, or and when we're watching them on the winter range. There's a big gap in there that a lot of our hunting seasons take place. Yeah. And, you know, our biggest thing was we needed to pack in enough for like a week with six horses. So when we made our first feed run, you know, we just you can't pack in compressed hay and hope it yep. lasts snowstorms and stuff like that. So that's why we went the cube route. We just yep. we just knew right away we were going to have to watch them close. And, you know, everything was fine. And none of our horses even lost weight through the whole hunt. They all ate good enough with us. And then up in that country, the wind blows so damn much up 10,000 feet, 11,000 feet. Those any of those east facing or south facing slopes are so blown off by wind As a hunter, that we'd let our horses graze when we'd be up there glassing and stuff like that. I so mean, we'd always try and let them graze whenever there was feed available area. for them. Yeah. And hey, I think continue. once you figure that out, you All right. So, yeah, I mean, we take care of a lot of these. Yeah, they <laughs> they were getting ready bulls. for an elk hunt. But uh, we got in, we got set up. Um, we actually, that at the trailhead, we ran into the outfitter and I kind of opened a gate for him and ran into him face to face, shook his hand, and I just, said, Hey, you know, this is your country. Um, I am sure you have somewhere you want to be on this late season hunt. Usually that you go to, we'd like to stay out of your hair. There's a bunch of country up there. We don't want to be sitting next to you at daylight, you know? And 
he said, well, he kind of said, yeah, this, I go up this one ridge. That's kind of where I like to sit. And then I go from there from what I see. We said, perfect. Well, we're going to take this other trail around and go down lower the drainage and see what we see down in that creek. And so I just, you know, coming from my background of guiding and outfitting, we didn't have to do that by any means. I didn't know the guy personally, and we could have been up on that same ridge if we wanted to, but it just more a little bit of respect to him and trying not to step his toes. And for us, it was more enjoyable to know we weren't going to be sitting shoulder to shoulder going, Oh, there's a bull. We got a race to it. Yep. And, uh, so yeah, opening morning, we saddled up, headed out and we basically split our horses into two day horses. So we had, we used three a day. One was a pack horse, two riders, and then we'd rotate them. However, we you know wanted which ones we wanted to ride or not. But that way, we basically had two teams. So one would get a each team would get a full day rest in between hunts, and uh, we ended up the whole. I mean, through the whole hunt, we covered man, we covered a ton of country. It was I I'd say bare minimum fifteen miles a day, if not twenty plus. And I mean, none of it was easy going. The every single day, one of the main trails we'd use to come around this mountain the wind would just blow the snow right back into where we'd gone. So we'd be pushing two to three foot of snow. And then the next day we'd go do it again because the wind would blow it in. It looked like you hadn't been there. Wow. The, if it wasn't for like our scouting trip of knowing those trails in there, you would looking into this burn going around the tip, you would have no clue where the trail went. It all yeah. just, looked like a, you know, a kind of a side hill snow landscape. And so it was really, our scouting was really beneficial for being, feeling comfortable getting around in that country, just knowing where the trails were and how we needed to get through that stuff, especially. But, uh, yeah, I mean, opening morning, we kind of, we immediately saw a really nice six by seven bull. He was long beamed heavy. And I was kind of guessing him somewhere in that 360, 70 range. And he, uh, (laughs) Bill and I are sitting there. He's like, Bill looks at me, he goes, one of us has to tag this bull, right? (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, I know it's like hour one of opener but that's a that's a dandy bowl yeah we probably should so we looked around a bit longer and then we're like all right well they kind of peeled off up this draw so let's go try and get around and maybe get on them and we started making our way around and it wasn't too long later we seen about 15 other bulls and then you'd look somewhere else and see more bulls so we found out quickly on this hunt you get distracted really quick (laughs) uh it's a good problem to have yeah exactly for a public land hunt i wasn't complaining it was a pretty good problem but we, uh, I met, I eventually glassed up a really, really beautiful, big six by six, just kind of one of those bulls. You, you know, it's in that upper class. You don't even have to, you're not looking at him judging if he's that big, you just know he's huge. Yeah. And, uh, so we, we see him and all plans change from the six by seven to this big six. And, um, with the amount of work Bill had put into this hunt, I really wanted him to have first choice of bulls and shooting and tagging out. And, you know, he put in a lot more work on his own outside of what I could do to help us learn the country. So I wanted it to be up to him for tagging out on the first bull, whatever one he wanted. And so we we made this plan to circle around these elk, get up on top of them, which took us about three hours with really icy conditions on the hills. We were, horses were slipping. It was tough going, but we eventually, we get up to the top, we sneak down, hiking down through the burn and we peek up over under the bench of this deep snow where they had been. And all that was there was some empty beds and, uh, fresh tracks. And, Ugh. uh, that was our first lesson in hunting the migration. Those elk will just get up and leave any time of day. Yeah. It wasn't, they didn't blow out or nothing. They just got up and migrated and we never laid, laid eyes on those elk again. And, uh, that was kind of a, I, you know, hindsight days later, I'm like, we should have just rode right up the bottom of the Creek, right, right below them. They would have stood up in the burn and watched us go below them. And we probably could have shot them. Yeah. 
but you know, that's not stuff you go into a hunt like this, knowing that's how they're going to act or, you know, what to do. We, we tried to do though, you know, the hunting thing where you sneak in and try and get close and hunt. Yep. Yep. And, uh, so we, we hiked back up to the top where kind of the ridge where our horses are tied. And then I told Bill, I was going to hike up the ridge to this high point and try and look in the next draw to see if we, maybe these bulls had held up again or something. And I took about six steps and the caught motion out of the corner of my eye down in a basin right below us. And we had, there was a group of bulls down in there. We hadn't even known we're there. And, uh, I t- grabbed Bill, we snuck up on some rocks and we started, there was about five bulls. And then the one bull that was bedded was a, just a heck of a six by seven. And the bills, I'm like, well, what do you think? He goes, he's 200 yards away. He's big. I can't not, I can't not shoot him. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like, well, I agree. He's a, he's a great bull. It's, I, I don't understand how, how we're going to walk away from him. You know, he was a beautiful 350 to 360 class bull, just really nice top end and yeah. good bull. And Bill goes, Bill thought about it for about a minute. Looks at me, goes, when he stands up, he's going down. <laughs> and uh, so we waited him out for a little bit and he stood up, turned broadside. And I mean, Bill drilled him twice. And man, it's just, you know, one of those things, elk are so dang tough. He drilled him twice, twice right in the boiler maker with his 300, but that bull just took both of them and kind of stood there and then just died on his feet and went down, which, you know, that's all you can hope for is a good quick kill. Yeah. In that country. And Crazy. Yeah, so was a, that was a long opening day. We, you know, pictures, celebrations, all the above. And then we ended up, we short quartered him and he was, he was a smaller bodied bull for his size, just probably through the migration, all that. So we were able to, with the short quartering and taking, you know, all the back straps and everything, but my pack horse was a stout little pony. And so we, we put the whole elk on him and he didn't even flinch. So I'm like, screw it. Let's put the cape and the head on him and not worry about coming back. So we yeah. packed the entire bull back to camp and we, you know, rode into camp two, three hours after dark, hung it on a meat pole that was about 400 yards from our camp and, you know, got to sleep late that night with plans to get up again for the morning next morning. And then, nice. yeah, it, so that was an awesome opening day, you know, cracked a little crown that night to, Heck yeah. and so it was, uh, from that point on, I, it was kind of on, now it was on my shoulders for my tag. And, you know, over the next days, it was just, it was just so much fun elk hunting. I mean, you just see different bulls and I, I was kind of getting to the point thinking I was crazy because I was passing on these 330, 340, some 350 class bulls. And I, on day two, towards the end of the afternoon, I misjudged a bull. I, I had him at 380 yards, but he was kind of facing away and I couldn't get a good look at him. I was like, oh. I don't know. I don't think he's that big. And then he turned sideways. And I was like, shit. <laughs> he went up and over the ridge and I was like, well, no problem. He wasn't spooked. We'll just catch up and I'm going to shoot that bull. Well, right about then a group of cows and spikes and calves and some raghorns above us blew down into him. And next thing I know, I saw the migration going full force. So I watched this. He was with another really nice bull, but they joined that cow group. And I mean, they flat covered country. And then the last time I saw him, they were going over an 11,000 foot ridge saying goodbye wow uh, so they were they pretty much just constantly moving were you finding bulls bedded down or is it just kind of you're just finding them moving through so we both but we'd find them bedded down like midday 10 to noon somewhere there i think from what i kind of we observed i think they move a lot during the night in the more into the morning and then they'd kind of take a a breather in the afternoon and these bulls would bed up way up in this burned timber up in the deep snow i mean they just it's weird Ever the sun would hit them, but they'd be bedded in the deep snow, just happier than hell. And that's where we'd always glass them when we'd be riding. You just glass up in the burn and all of a sudden there'd be a yellow spot. And uh, so that was it. You know, it was 
it was cool, but it just made you realize how important glassing that country was and getting high and using your vantage points. How much was it like, could you pick their line like based on topography? Like, okay, were they like following a consistent route or was it just kind of like wherever? Well, yeah, it was more like there was, there was definitely obvious places where they kind of filtered through, but you know, you'd see bulls on just up in this stuff that you wouldn't expect to see an elk in. Like, why are you up there? Yeah. I don't get it. I don't want to shoot you up there because I don't, <laughs> I can't get my, no, I can't get my horses up there. And so it was kind of, but like it had snowed probably like four days, five days before we got in there. So we could see a bunch of tracks. I mean, this one drainage was just like an elk highway. I mean, I've got picture of it. I mean, it just, you, you look at the picture and all it says is migration, I guess. I mean, it's yeah. just, it looks like a highway of, you know, stock, like you ran a herd of cows right through it, but it was just all elk. And I'm like, yeah, that's kind of when Bill and I started thinking, you know, we probably missed the main brunt of the migration because of the amount of snow. And so the whole time I'm sitting there being picky on bulls, I'm also wondering like, is this little like kind of, <laughs> is this bull train going to just stop and I'm going to be sitting here twiddling my thumbs? So, right. I, like you always wonder, like, did I miss it? Is it like, are the biggest ones still coming? Right. Uh, I was going to ask you, did you see when you're, when you're looking at these and you're finding groups, I mean, were you finding pretty consistent age groups? Like you're finding, okay, there's a group of younger bulls or there's a, you know, a group, uh, you know, or there's two or three old bulls or, you know, there's a bunch of cows and calves. Like what were you seeing as far as like age class and groupings, groupings of elk? Yeah. I mean, I'd like, you know, cows and calves were definitely grouped together um, with some raghorn younger, you know, two to three year old bulls and spikes. And then that next age group, four to six, we saw a lot of those types of bulls together. But usually with that, those bulls would be like a good bull, Um, you know, like the, you know, a prime six to eight year old bull. We never did see like a group that was, well, I guess I should retract that. On the, the day I eventually ended up killing my bull, we rode up on this ridge and this, the way these elk just kind of pile through there in the mornings. And we did, we saw a group of bulls that was probably four or five bulls. And I mean, all of them were between three thirty and three fifty, and they were just, yeah, they're cruising. And what we noticed, it seemed like if you saw bulls up on that Ridge, you'd never see them again. You'd either see them there and then they just vanish and you'd never see them in any of the other country that you know, they had to go through for their migration, but we would never see them like the next day when we'd go to that other spot. Yeah. So it's like, I don't know how they came into that country and how, you know, some of the elk, you just, it was just kind of crazy. I mean, you literally like was a blank slate the next day where you didn't know what you were going to see. Whereas, you know, on general season hunts, once you've been in some country for, you know, three, four days, you kind of have a pretty good idea what's there. You don't really expect just magic new stuff. Whereas this was, you know, it was just magic new stuff appeared and you didn't know what you were going to see. So walk me through your, your guys's decision to cover ground versus sitting, sitting in one location. seems like, you know, you, you got one drainage, you could probably sit there and, and every day a bulls, a group of bulls is going to come through and you're like, well, no, no shooter yeah. in that group, you know, like, so it, it sounds like it could work either way. How come you decided like, let's jump on the horses and just cover as much ground as we can. Mainly because sitting on top of that high ridge was like 40 mile an hour wind gusts all day long. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be <laughs> To be pretty plain and simple, it was miserable up on that high stuff. It, uh, that wind just never stops blowing in that country. And um, we, it was, we knew if we went and hunted this one ridge, yeah, we could sit up there all day and probably see new elk throughout the day filter across it and over it. But 
heck for Bill and I, I mean, as much of the hunt was about the adventure aspect and just enjoying being on horses in the wilderness. So for us, covering ground on the horses was just more fun and enjoyable. To, and we knew that a lot of that country, even though you could sit up like on this high point and glass a lot of it, there was a ton of nooks and crannies that you couldn't see into that you had to dive down into these drainages and just ride around these little finger ridges. And every time we did it, we'd see elk that you never would have known were there. Yeah. So it kind of just made sense for us to be up in a good vantage point in the morning and then kind of pick stuff apart. And then we dive into these big drainages and just start doing the more minute stuff of just riding country and looking up all these little like finger draws and things that we couldn't see in from up above and just not knowing what we'd see, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, and, I don't uh, mean that makes sense. Yeah. But we definitely could have sat up on the high Ridge, but man, there was just, there was no cover. There wasn't much to tie your horses to cause there's not many trees up there. And it was just, yeah, it was just flat out miserable to sit up there. Um, <laughs> well, it's got to be pretty miserable just riding around up there. Yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> the horses were not stoked. You know, at times they're leaning into the wind. You're going, what in the hell are we doing up here? Yeah. But then the moment you drop off the big ridges into the bottoms, it'd be nice and calm and relaxing. And so, you know, eventually you get that wind blowing in your ear long enough, you think you're going nuts. So it would always feel nice to d- dive off the ridge and get into the low stuff. Were most of those bulls uh, bedded on the leeward side so they were out of the wind? Yep, every one of them. Yeah, figures. And, and that was the thing. Most of these groups of bulls we were finding were lower in the drainages, like in the bottoms of bulls, bottoms of finger ridges. So that was kind of one of our reasons why we glass from a high point, but we weren't set on sitting there is because a lot of the spots where we were finding these bedded bulls were spots we would only see once we started riding into the lower stuff. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, just it, that country, it's big and steep and nasty, but man, it just has these little, I mean, folds to it that you just can't see from one spot at any point. Dude. And that's, I mean, that's like the key to all rifle elk hunting. And like, we're, we're talking about this tag in regards to being a super special tag, but I, I think a rifle elk, rifle Montana elk tag, any rifle late season tag, they're all the same. This particular tag just, I mean, is kind of an anomaly it's just like it's like an x factor of 10 you know right. what you're gonna see is just 10 times as many elk 10 times as big as elk you know and all these things but like all these these are all great examples of exactly how to do it you know you're looking at like okay where are they coming from where are they going to let's cut them off and these migration most i would say most rif- late rifle tags in the northern hemisphere are going to be this type where you're trying to catch bulls moving uh you're looking for little pockets you're looking for out of the weather pockets you're finding the age groups you know are you know am i seeing a lot of cows maybe i need to check somewhere else and it's kind of why i ask you like these age group questions uh i was just curious if it was the same as what we've seen on you know much easier to draw tags or i guess yeah much easier to draw tags if it's it's similar in that in that bigger stuff hundred percent. I think so. I mean, and we really didn't expect to see any big bulls with cows. We didn't really want to see that, you know? And so that was because the cows were grouped up in pretty big groups. A lot of the times that we were finding, you know, 60, 70, 80 plus cows in a group until we, we, we kind of created a super herd of like 300 at one point through our ramblings. But (laughs) (laughs) that, that was all kind of went into the day I found my bull. So I guess keep uh, going on your story. Yeah. So like day four, I think it was of hunting. Um, at that point I was, so that (laughs) flashback to day one, the six by seven we seen within the first hour of daylight, we saw this bull every day, basically we knew he was actually, so we kind of found out there was kind of one section lower in the drainage. It seemed like those elk were probably going to stay there for the winter because the wind blows those slopes off 
they'll winter in there. Hmm. And uh, so those bulls just seemed to stay put and weren't on the migration track as much as the ones we were seeing up further in the drainage. And uh, so we saw this one six by seven almost every day. And I was kind of at the point, I'm like, well, shit, two more days. We need to make either a feed run to the trailhead for our horses or, you know, and I was kind of just getting that. I felt bad for my hunting partner, even though all he was doing is enjoying elk hunting. And I, but I felt bad. He was tagged out and here I am, you know, picking and choosing. But I kind of brought that up and Bill goes, we came in here to, to look for giants. We're finding one. You're not shooting one of them 330 bulls because you've passed on them already. And yeah. I honestly, if I was by myself on that hunt, I don't know if I would have had the resolve to have stayed true to holding out as much as I did with Bill being there going, nope, you're not shooting that bull. That's and, awesome. That's uh, a good hunting partner right there. Yeah, no question. He's, he was very instrumental in the reason I eventually found the bull I, you know, I took. And so day four, we, we kind of looped around and I, we were up on the high ridge in the morning and I just right before they kind of disappeared way away, like four or five miles away up this finger drainage. I saw a bull that just, he looked big and I kept watching him and he was around some cows, but then he kind of went over a knoll down in the bottom of this they like into the bottom of the drains where we couldn't see him anymore. And all I could see is he had a big top end. And just when he turned away from me, he wasn't wide, but I could see his thirds just bucket out. And I mean, I just knew right then I'm like, that's, that's the type of bull I need to, we need to get better look at. He's big. And, uh, I think I just have a weird thing for thirds. I, they have, to have <laughs> same here. Like, don't worry. <laughs> yeah. And so I, and so I, uh, so we bail off the ridge. We, at that point we had figured out, the basically only way to bail off that ridge and all the deep snow because you couldn't just pick and choose your way like you normally would before the snow flies and uh so we bailed off we were about two hours getting over there and we had pretty good idea of how to get up this drainage we're going up and the thing with that hunt kind of like what happened to us on day one you just you'd start going places and you'd run into elk you didn't know were there every mm-hmm. time and so we're going and all of a sudden we run into a group of like eight bulls none of which were shooters there were some nice bulls in there but they all kind of bailed up and over and up the ridge. I'm like, you know, you start to go, shit, you know, they're going to bail right into where we need to go. So we rounded the corner and we were still quite a ways from where we expected that hurt kind of him and whatever herd he was with to be bedded. And uh, all of a sudden I look up on the ridge and yeah, I mean, they're, they were all up on the ridge and the cows were running around and he, he was at the back and there was a whole pile of younger bulls with them. And there was probably 80 to a hundred head of elk in the group. And, I didn't expect to see that because I had only seen about 10 elk when I seen them that morning, but we couldn't see a lot of the country that he was disappearing into. And uh, as they went over the ridge, there was a cow running and we couldn't tell if they were spooked by something else or if they were in migration mode. So we kind of started to think, man, they're pushing. They're going to they're going to migrate towards that pass. And when I seen him go over the ridge is when I realized how big he was. I was we know you get the skyline view of anything. Yeah always get the jaw drop no matter if it's mule deer or elk but this bull when he hit the ridge i just i knew right then i was like yeah that's what i came here for and (laughs) so we so bill and i start talking and i'm like what do you i'm a shit man that we're not gonna we can't just follow them on their tracks there's no way he goes well if they're pushing that pass we need to get around this mountain now so we uh we spun the ponies and we took off and we were doing some trotting and some running through some downfall and we were putting we were doing the 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 more cowboy rodeo way of hunting which was (laughs) a lot of fun and uh so we looped around and we pushed up this other drainage to cut them off at the pass you know and 
we, uh, of course, in doing so, we get all the way up there, and then we run into another group of 80, 90 cows with young bulls, and they blow back towards the group that we were trying to cut off. Oh, no. And so we're like, we we finally top out on a ridge hours later, and we're like, all right, there's got to be a lot of elk somewhere within our site. <laughs> kind of later on that afternoon, we fought, started to find them all, and they were all kind of piled into a almost a middle drainage in between us and where we'd seen them before. And all of a sudden, like by you know, that evening, there's like 300 elk out on this one main ridge and just bulls are sparring and cows are everywhere. And I'm like, there's no way we're getting on them tomorrow. I mean, how do you sneak in on 300 elk in big open country without being seen before you can get to what you're trying to get to? Yeah. As we're sitting there, I mean, I spent a ton of time behind the spotter and I never did see that big bull. So I had a lot of hope that he kind of maybe had peeled off because I just, it was still kind of both Bill and I were surprised. I'm like, why is that big bull with those cows? He's the, we haven't seen a single big bull with cows on this hunt. Mm-hmm. And uh, I kind of think he just got caught up with them. So the next day we decided to go back to our high point, even though it was a long ways from where we had hoped that bull was. And, you know, I kind of went to sleep that night thinking he's probably migrating out tonight. We're not going to see him again, but oh, well, you know, there's more out coming hopefully. And uh, we got up on the high point that next day and, it was a lot of snow squalls. You couldn't see that well. And it was just the clarity was going in and out, but I was like, Oh, I got, we got to sit here and try and find that cow group. And at least we can know where to sneak into to start trying to get closer to them. And, uh, we started finding a lot of cows in that kind of general area where we'd seen them the night, put them to bed, I guess. And I didn't see the big bull or anything with them. And then a big storm blew in and the wind was howling. We were pretty miserable up there, but Bill, stu- I mean, Bill's, he never complained. He stuck with me and let me sit there in the wind getting pounded by snow behind the spotter. And I mean, I'd, it was just one of those days where all the cards fell in your favor. I mean, it was a hundred percent. So much luck came into the opportunity to go after this bull, but I was sitting there and I looked up another finger draw and I saw a group of bulls kind of low up in it, right by some green timber. And one bull just looked like a, geez, his body just dwarfed the others. And I'm sitting there trying to get clarity on them just with the, how the storms were blowing in. You couldn't, you know, through a spotter, you just couldn't see with the snow, but there was a little brief spell where I could see. And he stepped in front of a tree right before he disappeared. And as he stepped in front of the tree and kind of turned his head, the first thing that stuck out to me were his thirds. And I was like, that's him. Like no question. That's him, you know? And so he disappeared right after that. And we had a pretty good idea. They were going to bed up in this draw and we had a good idea of where to go to come up over a saddle and be up above them looking in so we didn't have to ride up the same draw they were in like we did the day before. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, hours later, we're going up the one draw. We bust into a couple other bulls we didn't know were there. And they actually ran across us in front of us and then further to the, I guess, would have been the north and away from where we needed to go. So, I mean, it was just one of those days. Literally, everything fell in our favor yeah. where the day before it hadn't. And uh, we snuck up, got into the saddle. And we tied up the horses on the backside and started sneaking over the saddle, knowing hopefully they'd be there. And immediately I saw a group of was cows and some younger bulls bedded about on our eye level. And the wind was in our favor. Everything was in our favor. But, man, them they were just touchy-feely. And those cows saw something immediately they didn't like. And they started standing up and starting to move out. And I was like, shit. And uh, looked down in the bottom kind of below us. And I picked out the the bull group that I'd seen that morning, they were kind of bedded in the snow. So I immediately, we kind of ran down to a tree a little off the ridge and I got down on my 
gun and Bill's behind me with his binos just glassing and I started picking apart the bulls and just there was one bull that had really good fronts not that great of a top end I'm like that man it's it's a nice bull but it's just not him I know what I saw you know and I started sitting there just debating myself like did I not <laughs> him did I see this bull yep. I didn't see the top end and you know you just start debating everything when you're oh, in a for sure. everything's starting to move and you don't have the time to just sit there and breathe and so we probably had like three, four minutes before that cow group had kind of already started to blow out. And then I kind of ranged the group of bulls I was looking at at about 380, 400 yards. And they started to get up and move around and we're starting to get antsy too with that cow group moving above them. And I'm like, shit, Bill, I'm not, I'm not going to shoot this bull. I, I know this is one is not what I saw. I know I, what I saw. And, uh, so those bulls started filtering up the up the slope to kind of follow those cows, and I was starting to get worried. And then Bill goes, "There's there's there's something big coming out of the bottom. There's a few more out coming out, and one looks like a big bull." And so I kind of drop and see catch this bull going through the trees, and I catch him in an opening. And right when I seen him, it was just no question. I mean, it was him. You know, that's and, so awesome. I love that feeling. Yeah, you know, one of those ones. There was no like, okay, is it him? It was, yep, that's him. Like three seconds of Bill, I have a shot. I'm going to take him. Okay. <laughs> I, you know, took my first shot. I hit him a little high just because I looked at those other elk and gla- ranged him at 400, whereas he popped out more like 283. So I hit him a little high and he, the couple bulls that were with him kind of shot out from behind the trees and he had disappeared right when I, sh- after I shot behind a tree, I had to wait, you know, 30 seconds. He stepped out a cup, just, he was stoved up, but he stepped out. And then I was, I, you know, I kind of, took a deep breath and remembered he was probably a lot closer than what I had planned on. And I aimed where I needed to and dropped him. And it was kind of a, you know, the whole senses and relief of everything. And we were uh, pretty happy. And so it was a, it was a relief to see him go down and watch him go down. And then we we had to figure out how the heck to get over to him because it was just a really nasty, like almost cliff bottom drainage. So it took us about an hour to get to him once we got, even got the horses. Oh man. Freaking, that's epic though. There's nothing better like when you when you have a bull or a buck even, and then he like kind of goes missing, and then all of a sudden you see him pop out of the trees. Like there you are, found you. Like to me, that's right. That's late rifle elk is like turning up those giants. Yeah, and I mean, there's just something about you know being in the snow, seeing them move through the snow and like bedded and that stuff, and just it's so it was so cool just seeing big you know groups of bulls and looking at tons of elk every day was so much fun, and then. We got over there and started riding up. You know, we kind of, I marked on my, like on my, on my onyx. Okay. I, he's on this bench. Cause we're like, everything changes when you are in country that you've never yep. really been. And then you get over somewhere and you're like, Oh, but it, this was pretty straightforward. But nonetheless, it took us a while to figure out how to get over to him. Once we finally did, we started riding down the bench he was on. And man, once he started, you know, coming into view, it just, he just kept getting bigger. And I was, <laughs> I was just one of those ones where my smile just got, bigger and bigger and Bill's smile was just I mean he was as stoked for me if not more stoked than I could even be and we were yeah we you know got off the horses and just were kind of in awe I mean it was like this is what we came here for it's what I I'd spent you know months dreaming of a bull like this and to finally you know put my hands on a just a gorgeous big typical that you know he wasn't wide by any means but he just had mass from bottom to top and that's you know one of the things I kind of I guess in the back of my mind, the whole time dreaming of this hunt all summer was like, I want just a big typical with beautiful swords, you know, just heavy, just a good mature bull to, you know, I, the scorecard doesn't matter to me. I just want something with that wow factor that makes me happy. And 
That's oh, you exactly. got it. <laughs> well, he was, yeah, that and more. And then his, his one brow tine droops off. And yeah. so he had some unique character to him and just, it was everything I could ask for and more in a hunt. And then to finish it with a bull like that was just, you know, unreal. Dude. Oh, what an epic hunt. Well, congrats. Uh, what do you think the biggest lesson learned or I guess biggest takeaway for late season rifle is? Oof. Yeah. I mean, putting on miles, I, I mean, biggest takeaway for that hunt, obviously that hunt, like we've said, is kind of an anomaly. I mean, I've done some late hunts that are definitely a lot tougher where you're covering tons of ground and not seeing any out for a long time. And yeah, it's definitely like a, it's almost like a mental toughness. I think it's, you have to just be willing to tough out shitty conditions to be successful because I mean, even though we were seeing elk, which obviously made it much more enjoyable, the conditions were rough, you know, it was tough on our horses and tough on us. And it just, when you're not seeing the elk that you want to see, even with that type of a tag, whereas, you know, if you have a, a general tag or just some other late season tag where you kind of set whatever in your mind is what you're hoping for. And if you're not seeing that after a few days, you just start to get down and you get down on yourself. And I think that goes for any hunt, but late season stuff, I think that between the conditions and everything, it really plays a lot more on your mental fortitude to be able to, you know, just withstand it. Oh, for sure. Like dude, the wind, I, I've learned yeah, that wind, I yeah, I hate the wind. <laughs> I do too. Absolutely. Yeah, I, that's yeah. Any tips for dealing with the wind or just oh, this is the worst. Yeah, just like it's so miserable. I mean, you know, I I ride with a stormy cromer with a rancher flap and like a a silk scarf I'd tie around my ears because for me the wind in my ears drives me crazy. Yep. And uh, I but yeah, I mean, there's just nothing you could do but grin and bear it. At one point, Bill and I tried to take our, our horses and like, we were letting them graze up on the ridges and everything. And we tried to like put, tuck them behind us. I'm like, you know, if we brought a Manny with us, we could, we could tie the Manny around our horse, yeah. and, you know, a blockage. I'm like, I'm like, but at the same time, we turn our horse into a minor kite. So maybe this <laughs> wouldn't be the greatest idea, but it sure sounded like a good idea. Uh, when I was Dude, that's the worst is when everything beds up on the leeward side and you're just, just taking the wind right in the face all day like trying to glass you can't see anything because your pipe or tripod just shaking like a leaf like this yeah, yeah. oh the worst the absolute worst <laughs> yeah it's just like brutal on every part of your body you're just you know we weren't i wouldn't say we it, luckily for us the temperatures weren't miserable cold like they'd been the week before the hunt like that yeah. Had it been one of those temperatures where it was dropping in the negative 20s a night, it would have been a whole nother world of, you know, trying to stick it out. Because once that stuff gets really, really cold, everything is just so much more challenging. You know, just your fingers, every bone in your body hurts more. So yeah. we we definitely lucked out with the temperatures. You know, it was cold at night and stuff like that, but nothing like it could have been. Yeah. Do you think that like when a guy's or if, if, if possible, and this is always hard because a lot of a lot of rifle tags, most of them in the country are, you know, here's the set dates, right? Montana's right. kind of the anomaly with kind yep. of get the whole time. Uh, what's your thought on hunting storms, on hunting weather, on hunting? Like what, what's ideal to you? Like hypothetically, if you were say hunting in a state like Montana where you got to choose, you know, would you stay away from super cold? Would you go in and super cold just because maybe it's going to move stuff around, you know, What's, what's your kind of thought on that as far as migrations and, and dealing with weather? Cause I, man, I, I think hands down, like it, the mental factor is going to wear on you. And yeah. even if you don't think that's going to 
be what, what breaks you, you know, breaks the straw that yep. broke the camel's back. I think a lot of times it is like you, you yep. go in and you're like, oh yeah, we're going to have this awesome storm. And I'm, I'm one of those guys who likes chasing storms. Uh, as far as hunting goes, I think there's, there's really good hunting to be had the beginning and end. Uh, yep. having said that, if you're talking like you look at the weather and it's going to be zero degrees and, and 30 mile an hour winds for a week straight, I promise you, you won't last long. Yeah, no, I agree. And I mean, I'm saying, Bo, I love storms in terms of like w- wanting to hit a storm and ter- especially snow, mm-hmm. you know, after you've had like a September archery or whatever like that. But if you can hit like with October rifle and you get your first big storm and it lasts a few days and puts those animals in the trees for a little while, there's nothing more I love than like a fresh blanket of snow and being up on a glassing point at daylight. Yeah. And I mean, just there's, you know, that that's like dream conditions for me always is just fresh snow and just like a cold spell or whatever breaking that, you know, these animals have been, you know, kind of hiding from a little bit and now they're ready to get out and feed because, you know, they're going to be moving through the day and all that. So that's, that's a benefit of the cold weather. But like you said, I mean, the idea of going out in negative temperatures or even zero when it's just miserable and everything is just so much harder on you. I mean, it's not something I like would jump at doing if I don't, (laughs) I guess I should say like, I'm, I'm a pretty stubborn person to myself of like not letting things take, you know, push me away from going on a hunt or things like that. But if I'm looking at the temperatures and they're going to be miserable, the chance of me wanting to pack into somewhere, whether it's on my back or even with horses and deal with it, it would depend on what the hunt is and how yeah. necessary I need to do it, you know? Yeah, it depends a lot on what my potential here is, you know? Like, if I've got uh, potential to kill a 350 plus bull, we might, we, we could talk about it, but like, we're like, oh, gonna kill a raghorn, but it's gonna be 20 below. Yep, no thanks. Yeah, <laughs> Single pass. I, I, have a, I have a cow tag every year for it. That's about <laughs> easy to fill that, you know, is the least I know meat in the freezer. And, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, it's, definitely you know dealer's choice on that one if you can withstand it it's you're gonna get good hunting and those elk are gonna be moving during the day same thing with deer but i mean some of it's just it's just not fun it's just not pleasant and you know we got lucky with a good spell of you know not warm temperatures but comfortable temperatures for what we were doing and you know it you know like when it's miserable out heck i've i mean i've done it i've killed especially when i was guiding you were we were out every day no matter what you know that's the you know, clients paid for a heck of a, a hell of a hunt and it didn't matter if it was negative 10 or not. You needed to be out there for their hunt. And yeah. I remember, I remember killing elk when it was, you know, zero or below and just everything was worse. And, you know, you gutting them and you take your hands out for 30 seconds and the blood's just frozen on your hands. So you're sticking your hands back in the elk just to warm yourself. <laughs> <laughs> trying to start a fire. Everything's just tougher. Dude, nothing works under zero. Like it everything breaks. Nothing works. <laughs> just, no, even miserable. I mean, even snowmobiling in the winter, it's like, yeah, yeah. it's going to be negative 10 today. Well, that sounds terrible. Yeah. Something's going to break for sure. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, in you were ta- kind of talking, we were talking about storms. Another thing, like anybody with a Montana tag, uh, I, I like, and this season's been weird. Like you said, like early snow and then no snow. It just been so weird. I, I would, I would leverage if I was anyone in Montana, I would leverage the next 10 days of there's like in our forecast, we have a little bit of snow here and there. So yeah. uh, it's going to snow, let's just say today, uh, today, tomorrow, right? It's going to snow one, one day or whatever. Like I would be up there in the storm if I could. And then also maybe the next day or the following day. And if I only had one day, 
I had to choose and I didn't know where elk were, if I'm like, man, I just have no idea where elk are right now, I would be like uh, 12 to 24 hours after the storm because then I can see tracks. And it's like, yeah. I, dude, fresh slate, whole mountain, fresh slate. Let's, let's see what's, what's where. And we can look at the snow and be like, there's tracks up there. I know there's elk there. Yeah, I agree. I mean, tracks are huge. And I would definitely like if you're the weekend warrior aspect or just a one day hunter or whatever you got, like I would choose after the storms ended by a day or so you go up there you see tracks, you know, they're in there. Yeah. You, it's not a question of are they, it's, you know, they're there. Now you just got to figure out where they're rotating to or where they're moving to. And likely like with the current weather situation, when we have, it's not bad, you know, it's pretty pretty mild conditions right now and you have one little storm it's not like yeah. that's going to push elk you know most no. of them are probably in their mid stage they they've migrated some but they're probably staging here until december uh right. and so with this storm it's not going to push them anywhere so if you get tracks you're like okay that that elk's probably going to be there for unless it gets bumped unless someone you know hunting pressure yeah. probably going to be there for a couple of days yeah i agree and i mean like you know it was crazy like for the end of our hunt that day we killed mine we packed half of them to the entrance of the drainage for the next morning to come in and make our trip in shorter. Cause we knew the next day we wanted to get both all the meat from both bulls out of to the trailhead and then bring in two more bags of feed for our final night and come back in. We knew it was going to be a long, long day. And, uh, so, but we dropped down to the trailhead and we're dropping down those switchbacks and I'm shedding layers. And next thing you know, it's like summer down at the trucks. I'm like, <laughs> what in the shit is going on? Like, it, you know, we're not that, you know, we're, four hours from camp, but it went from winter to summer down here. And then we rolled back up into winter and I had to, you know, slowly put on layers as I'm going back up. I'm like, I liked it down there more. And, uh, so it's just, it's crazy how the, like you think you're, you know, I'm up there for a week in what, you know, winter wonderland, but within three hours right below us, it's basically, I mean, not summer, but I mean, warm temperatures and no snow on the ground. So you're sitting up there like, Oh, elk are moving. It's full on winter. And then you go down there and you're like, Oh, okay. I can see why there's still elk coming through the week before. Well, I guess week, roughly a week before I went on my hunt, my uh, roommate, he'd gotten back from work cause he works out of state and I, he only had like four or five days left in the general season to hunt elk. And I told him to go up to one of the spots I've, I showed him kind of years ago that I've killed a bull in. And it's just one of those types of spots. It's a, you go hike it in the morning if they're there, they're there. If they're not, they're not. It's not like an, you really, you can make it an all day spot, but it's really more of just a, they're there in the meadows or they're not. And, uh, he goes up there and kills a 395 gross non-typical. <laughs> oh, that's the one your buddy or you posted. Yeah. That's my roommate. And, uh, dude, that thing's a giant. Oh, it's so it, the thing is so much more impressive in person. Like pictures just don't do it justice. Like talk about thirds. Those things are ridiculous. 24 and like 21 on the thirds and then 25 and 23 on the two Royals. And, uh, so I shut the front door. That thing's huge. Yeah. So I, I tell him, I'm like, yeah, you should go up there tomorrow. He's like, yeah, I think I will. And his, (laughs) his, his brother also lives in town and had just gotten back from work. So he tried to get his brother to go with him, but his brother got back late at night and was like, no, I'm sleeping in. So, Craig goes up there alone. And uh, like, this was the thing though. Like this was after all these storms that hit in October and we're like sitting here, like it's going to be an early winter. I knew those elk were migrating up North from the country I used to guide in. And so I was like, if they're migrating out of there, they're probably going to be pushing through this spot. You know, it'd be a, it'd be a good, you know, easy day spot to see what's going on. At least you'll have snow on the ground and can see if they've been in there. 
So I'm, you know, I'm at work heading to the first job of the day or something. And he sends me a picture of that bull on the ground. And the picture, the two pictures he sent me were terrible. (laughs) You know, I could see the drop time. I knew it was a good bull. And I was like, man, that's awesome. Like called him immediately, you know, dude, that's, you know, that's freaking awesome. You know, he's never killed a mature bull and he's originally from Maine. He's killed some elk for meat and stuff. And shut up. That's like insane. Three (laughs) this This was his first year really trying to be more picky on hunting because he'd killed some, you know, yeah, younger deer and younger bulls, but he never held out for anything. He was always wanting to put meat in the freezer. So I kind of, I gave him shit a little last year because he shot a deer that I want, I wanted him to hold out more for the country. We get to hunt his residence. I was like, you should have held out. And so I always, I gave him a shit for fun. And so he's always, he's like, I'm not going to piss you off this year. Oh yeah. (laughs) So he, and he, he got an incredible buck this year as well. He worked his ass off, but he, uh, so he sends me those pictures. I'm like, yeah, that's a, that's a great bull. I call him and he goes, yeah, man. And that's, that country is known to have grizzlies in it. So he's like, I'm going to get Nick out of bed and make him come up here and help me out to get this thing out. But it's an, you know, easy pack out, great spot. And I'm like, yeah, we're right on. And he's like, I just can't decide if I'm going to cape him or not. I'm like, you're like 45 minutes from the truck. You might as well cape him. That's not a hard hard hike. And I'm like, that looks like a great bull, man. I mean, you're going to want him in it. The very worst you can sell the cape, you know? Yeah. So you know, the day goes by and a couple of the guys at work at the end of the day, like, have you got a better picture of that bull? It's like, Oh no, I'll ask him. And like, Hey, you take any better pictures. And he sends me that the picture, the nice picture of it from the (laughs) side. And I would, I was like, Holy shit. (laughs) I'm like, Craig, that's a huge bull. He goes, you think, you think he's pretty big? (laughs) I guarantee you he's over 350. He goes, Oh man, I I was, yeah, I was hoping, you know, that he'd be, I didn't think he'd be that big. I was like, gee, yeah, he's, (laughs) I guarantee you he's well over that based on what I can see from those thirds. I had no idea his thirds were that big. And uh, so Craig goes, well, yeah, there was another typical with him that was almost as big, I think. No way. So had his brother woke up, they could have both been basically meat hunters, dropped two of the bigger, probably gentle tag bulls in the state for the year. God. So he, but he shot that one because that one turned broadside at 75 yards and he saw the drop tiny and he didn't. He didn't know which one was bigger. He didn't care. He saw the drop tine, and that one was the first one to turn broadside, and he dropped it. No, how far? Seventy-five yards. <laughs> so he, uh, but so I get home, and uh, you know I hit the garage door, and so he, of course, being a smartass, set up that bull perfectly on like the snowmobile, so it'd be the first thing I see when the garage opens. Yeah, and just my jaw dropped. I mean, when I seen that thing as the door opened, I realized how big it was. I mean, it's just a gorgeous bull, 45 inches on the inside spread. And just one of those big old bulls that bells out and comes in. And it was just so cool for, I mean, unique. And I, I mean, it couldn't happen. I was so stoked for him. Cause I mean, he could care less if it was 390 or 350 or 330, but for him to kill an awesome bull like that, I was pumped. So going into my hunt, I'm like, well, I could have just I could have just gone on a thirty minute hike with a general tag and popped a monster, but I'm gonna go pack in for seven days and no get my kidding. butt kicked for a while. But it was, you know, I was uh, for me, I love the adventure of those wilderness horseback hunts, so I was really stoked on my hunt. But it was, you know, pretty cool to for the two of us to have a great. We both had a great year, and then just to be able to put those bulls side by side when I got home was pretty awesome. To have a you know, a 380 class typical next to a 395 class non-typical. Dude, that thing's hot. Is that, is his right main beam, like not a main beam? So it's, it is, it like goes up to his Royal and a huge, huge Royal. And then he's got the drop tine off that side. But then right after the Royal, it's still a main beam, but it literally just like all of a sudden all the mass drops off and he's just like a little wimpy 
I mean, he still goes for a little ways, but it's just like a little wimp. It's like a wimpy arm, like a T-Rex arm. <laughs> it, I mean, it looks like a drop time that continues as a main beam. Yeah. I mean, it's, he put all of his effort into growing his giant Royal and the drop time. And then like literally the palmation right there at the Royal, he's got two flame points coming out in the crook of that Royal yeah. that are I mean, two and three inches. And I can take my whole palm and put it there and not cover the whole mass that's there. And none of that scorable mass, you know, that's just, yeah. that's one, one of those things. That's one of those bulls. You just got to put hands on to realize how just unbelievable they are. Dude. That's what I love about Wyoming is like a giant, like that can come off the general tag. Like yeah. who knows, you know, it's kind of like, you know, in Colorado, you can kill a giant buck off m- most of the tags. Wyoming's kind of that way. Like that, man, that country, you just, who knows, could turn a yeah. four inch bull. No, I mean, and like I've always, I've said, as long as I've lived here, I'll take a general tag over anything, you know, in terms of opportunity at quality over any other state. And Dude, I, mean, I, I got a question for you. We were debating this the other day. I'm leaning towards, Wyoming as a rifle state for some, and part of it is because like I can get Montana as an archery state and I think it's a great archery state Yeah, and man, you guys have some awesome rifle hunts. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I agree, especially on like a general tag. Yeah. Tons of opportunity for rifle. And then, I mean, our archery hunting is great too for most of September, but like, you know, I grew up in Idaho where it's pick or choose basically, you know, you're either trying to buy an over-the-counter archery or rifle tag, or you're putting in for an archery or rifle tag. So, I mean, I'm spoiled as hell now living here as long as I have to have the opportunity to archery hunt. And if that doesn't work, I have numerous areas that open at different dates that I can hit for different rifle openers or different types of hunts, whether it be wilderness or like a national forest that's just closer to home that I know still can produce really good stuff. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, what's your I opinion can, on uh, like uh, within Wyoming because you have different opening dates? Do you like uh, opening, or is it more just the time that you like picking a time frame? Like, AKA, is opening day important to you as a Wyoming right. rifle hunter? I, yeah, I mean, I think I I like opening days. It's just I guess the whole nostalgia behind it. But at the same time, if you you know. My roommate, for example, he works as an engineer on oil rigs, so he's here a month, gone a month. So, I mean, he didn't have a really a choice for his hunting this season. He kind of – those months are dictated to him by work. Yeah. So, he missed a lot of those openers, you know, at the end of September through October. So, he was he was situated to when he didn't get one with a bow to having to hunt the last four or five days. And had he been here the whole time, he probably would have tagged out a long time before on something else. But he, you know, in doing so and waiting till the very end, he got to hunt an opportunity at migrating elk because of the early snows that most people would have already punched a tag by then. And so it's, you know, if you're willing to, you know, sit there and chew on it and, but you can't ever expect snow to fall like it did this year because it definitely doesn't happen every year. You know, this is, I'd say this is the first time in the past four or five years, I think that the, the real migration has actually happened before the season closes. So you think that bull that Craig killed was just because of early migration? Yeah, I I think for sure it was a Yellowstone bull. Hmm. I really do. Just I I mean, it just had that kind of big dark horn and almost I feel like some of them Yellowstone bulls just get yellow or yellow bodies. I don't know. They're just there's something to them and I mean it very well could might not have been, but usually the there'd been so much snow had fallen up in, up way north on the line at that point that I'd been told by some other friends that had guide that country still and stuff that they were seeing full on migration coming out and had been for a while. So I would, 
I would put my money on that bull was a, a migrating bull. Yeah. Um, did you guys get that teeth aged on that bull? I'm curious if you're going to get the age on him. On his? Yeah. He uh he took out a bottom incisor, so he's going to get it to game and get it aged, which I was kind of hoping the same thing. Yeah, you'll have to text me and tell me what that he ends up going or right. what he ends up aging out at. Yeah, and I mean, like, mine kind of aged out at, well, rough guessing, more in like that six to eight range. He really wasn't that old and probably yeah. – had some growth left to him for a year or two. Whereas Craig's is definitely, you could tell the incisors are worn down. The ivories are worn down more, but it was kind of cool. Like the funny thing, you know, we sat there with Bill and I's bull at the trailhead. And actually when we got to the trailhead on our final day, when we packed out with all of our camp and our, the heads and everything, we, the game warden actually already knew my hunt partner from before. And he ran into him up in the woods and so he kind of knew we were on that hunt and was hoping to run into us just to see what we got more than anything. So him and his wife took a drive up that evening and happened to basically arrive right at the trailhead right when we got there. And heck, they jumped into helping us unsaddle horses and put away loads just so we could get to town to get a steak dinner, which was awesome. <laughs> and he was just cool as hell to hear his stories about their migration cameras and stuff. And he's like, yeah, your bull's really recognizable. Once I check that camera, if I see the if I see that droop tine front, I'll get you some pictures of them if I can. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, that was really cool of him. But when we're sitting there, kind of, I'm looking at both Bill and I's bulls like I hadn't really done yet on the hunt. And, you know, Bill's bull's a great 350, 360 class, gorgeous bull. But the the skull size between mine and his was just night and day in terms of how much just bigger my skull was. Really? That was – then so, like, when I put it next to Craig's, they were very similar and just the heads were enormous. And, I mean, so I don't know if that – it, it just, I mean, it was, it was very noticeable to the naked eye sitting side by side, how different the skull size was on these two bulls. I mean, I, I don't know if that's, you know, something that he, his bull would have grown into in three years, or if that's just something that those two bulls were, I mean, genetics or just what genetically it was. bigger. Yeah. Yeah. You know, hard to say, I don't know enough about it. Yeah. I'd be curious if anybody knows, um, man, what an epic hunt. You got me all stoked. I want a Wyoming <laughs> rifle tag now. <laughs> uh, well, congrats, buddy. Um, if everybody wants pictures, uh, give them your Instagram handle so they can check out all these badass pictures. Yeah, uh, just my last name, Rosso, then underscore Wyo. Nice. Yeah, you can check out Craig's 395 bull. That thing's insane. Yeah, I know. Your bull's I insane. All of them, dude. We, yeah. uh I need to get some better pictures up of it. Well, I don't really have any of his pictures. He, he's not too big on the social media, but I had to put that bowl up just because it was so incredible. And <laughs> now he's going to so, get pissed because we said it on the podcast. <laughs> right. No. So him and him and I decided to be, <laughs> decided to be real touristy. And after I got back with my bowl, we, uh, we actually ran up to one of those Teton overlooks and oh, nice. we, we took pictures with both of them in front of the mountains. I'm like, yeah, it's not, we're never going to get a chance to kill bulls like this on the same year again, probably ever, let yeah. alone if we ever surpass bulls like this. So, you know, I tried to take pictures to, you know, remember the hunt, remember everything about it. And I try to get better about taking pictures and all the above on any of my hunts anymore. Yeah. No kidding. I'm terrible but, about it. Yeah. I still, I still got a late season muzzleloader Idaho tag. So oh, nice. elk, in December. So for elk. Yeah. Dude. That's awesome. Yeah, I, uh, I, my season's not done yet. And so I'm, I, A, got to figure out how to shoot a muzzleloader. <laughs> then, uh, yeah, no, uh, my, my good friend who's going to help me out, who I grew up with, and this is back in country I'm very familiar with. So it's not like I'm going in blind, but he, 
he drew a muzzleloader deer tag a few years back. And so he got, you know, the full top of the line muzzleloader set up for Idaho. It's got to be open sites, all the above. So he brought it over to me when he came out here elk hunting. And so I've just got to go shoot it a few times, feel comfortable. And then we'll at least go have some fun in December and give me something to do and beat around the hills. And if it's not going to snow and I can't really snowmobile, I might as well be hunting. <laughs> that's not the truth. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome, man. Well, congrats and good luck on both, I guess. So you're mid midway. Um, well, good luck in Idaho, man. Seriously. Um, but thanks again for jumping on freaking what a epic year so far. I mean, you've kind of had pretty good years back to back to back. So crushing it, man. But, uh, congrats on this. Uh, it sounded like it was an adventure for sure. Yeah. I, don't, I mean, it's going to be one of those hunts that I don't ever really expect to get, you know, something to compare it to, but yeah. we're, Bill and I were kind of joking the whole hunt. We're just like, we're spoiled for the rest of our elk hunting lives. Like, <laughs> True. Oh, there's three thirty bull. Like let's ride by. Oh wait, no, we have a general tag. We got to shoot that bull. Yeah. <laughs> or we got a little spoiled. This hunt. Uh, sure. No kidding. <laughs> just ruined you. Yeah. But luckily, you know, I, I made a really good friend and hunting partner who just has the same ideas in my mind of let, let's go explore a new remote country from now on. So, you know, him and I are already talking about where should we put in next year? Or if we get general tags, what different random wilderness area do we want to go explore and just check stuff out? So, you know, made a really good hunting partner and friend out of the deal. So, I mean, it really couldn't have lined up any better for my, for the whole hunt and, you know, meeting a new friend that just likes to hunt how I do. Uh, that's awesome. That's really, really special dude way cool well uh thanks again buddy and uh everybody go check out uh all the photos and stuff on his instagram uh man epic epic hunt for sure but uh thanks again and uh good luck in idaho buddy all right guys thanks for tuning in to the elk hunt podcast if you love elk hunting content tips and tactics all that jazz then go leave this podcast a review wherever you listen to podcasts at. Much appreciated. And if you're interested, go check out our Elk Hunt 201 course. It's a four-step system for doubling your success. It's a great resource, and it's going to make you a better hunter. I guarantee that, or we'll refund your money. Uh, If you don't get anything out of it, if you don't get $30 out of it, then we'll definitely refund your money. So go check it out. Link in the show notes.